1: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall.
3: And I'm Melissa Metric.
2: On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice— to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history.
3: In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments.
2: Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today.
3: You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie.
2: We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Welcome to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. Uh, I'm Wythe Marshall. And
3: I'm Melissa Metrick.
2: And we're so excited to be joined today uh, by Nina Bhattacharya and Blake Glover. Uh, And they're going to talk with us from the perspective of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Uh, and we're going to cover some urban ag, uh, territory that we've not, um, dived into yet on the show, including the, the people's garden initiative. Uh, and also we're going to talk, uh, Blake is a conservationist and we'll be talking about, um, some of his work and the farm bill. So it's going to be really, um, exciting. Uh, and yeah, I'm very thankful that, that we were able to make time. Could you just introduce yourselves really quick? Sure, Um,
4: I'm Nina Bhattacharya, the Urban Agriculture Specialist for the USDA Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production. Um, And I've been working in the field of urban agriculture for some time. I uh, started with the agency Natural Resources Conservation Service as a soil conservationist working in Rhode Island. Um, I got to work with a number of community gardens in Providence and also, um, you know, moved down to Florida where I've been able to work with urban farms and was lucky enough to get a job with the Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production.
5: All right. Uh, my name is Blake Glover. I'm the state conservationist for the Natural Resource Conservation Service here in New York. A um, little bit about me. I, I started with the agency as a student, as a pathway student in Missouri. That's my home state. Um, I've been around the country a little bit, Arizona, New Mexico, Montana. And now I'm here in New York as a state conservationist um, delivering, you know, Farm Bill program dollars to to producers around the state including an urban act setting.
2: Well, that's great. It sounds like you both have um, a really wide perspective and hopefully will be able to help us understand some of the higher level shifts, maybe some of the trends you're seeing, I think is something really interesting. Um, but of course, we want to get into some of the details um, because, uh, you know, I, I found out about your work uh, by some press release about the People's Garden. So I thought maybe we could just kind of dive in um, maybe Nina, you could, you could tell us, what is the People's Garden Program of the USDA? Um, you know, when was it founded? What does it do? Um, what are you up to now? And maybe that'll provide a, a pathway into some of your, your work.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, we're just really excited to bring back this really popular effort. We're inviting individuals to participate in agriculture in their own communities. You know, that's really at the heart of it. And the People's Garden Initiative, it was originally founded in 2009 by the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, uh, and we've recently renewed the effort. This is back in May of 2022. Its name for the People's Department—that was, um, you know, former President Abraham Lincoln's nickname for the USDA—and you know, related to that question of why why it was founded, why the People's Garden Initiative was founded, we really see how the simple act of planting a garden can have big impacts. You know, from building a more diverse and resilient food system to empowering communities, addressing issues like nutrition access and climate change. And so the People's Garden Initiative is really a movement, bringing gardens together to make those big impacts.
2: That's cool. Can you tell us a little more about what the People's Garden Initiative does? Date? Like, what does your day look like? You know, are you visiting many different places? Are you writing up sort of programming and educational materials? What, how do you sort of spur urban ag? So that's something we talk about a lot with growers, um, with people working on policy. You know, what, what makes, what helps people get into to ag in urban settings?
4: Sure. So I'm the general coordinator of the People's Garden Initiative. I'm actually based in Florida, um, but I work with a number of different folks at different levels getting the initiative rolled out. Um, we've got, of course, our Washington, D.C. headquarters garden and a farm manager up there who's doing a lot of wonderful work, you know, enhancing that garden, showcasing sustainable practices, and so forth. Um, he's also incorporated different events and volunteer days that people really enjoy so you know i help um with coordination efforts that are needed to kind of make sure that he can do his job and 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 get that garden you know up and going and and well functioning um we also have launched you know uh, a registration form for gardens across the country to participate in the initiative um so people can just simply go to you know usda.gov People's Garden website, and there's a registration form to submit to be part of that network. Um, So in terms of my day-to-day, you know, I help build out that registration form. We do review the submissions that come in. Um, Those submissions, once reviewed and approved, get posted to our website. So people who register have a chance to, you know, put their gardens out there um, and, and kind of join that network. And we also have 17 flagship gardens that are across the country, and Blake can speak to the ones in New York. Um, a lot of those gardens are really just, um, you know, there's a specific need in the community, and those gardens are helping to address those needs. And, and it can range from, you know, getting education and educa- educational activities out there to just growing more food and providing it to people who need it. Um, so my day to day is really kind of looking at all those pieces and and making sure that those efforts move along in in, in their various fashions.
2: That's cool. What what makes the Flagships Gardens flagship?
4: Well, there are certain you know areas identified around the country as um, kind of urban areas. We're trying to encourage more producers to know where you know to get USDA access to programs and so forth. And so the flagship gardens have sort of followed that, that area um, of, of expanding our efforts to urban producers.
3: So if, let's say, if I manage a garden and it's a public garden and, um, you know, we do work with the community, um, what, what would be like the benefit to join this initiative? Um, yeah.
4: Yeah, so um, we do provide a People's Garden sign, and there is the publicity aspect, so once a garden is approved, it gets on our website, and gardens are encouraged to share that out with their networks. In addition, we're looking to build out a webinar series um, starting in 2023 and identify some of those needs that gardens have, whether it be... Navigating local policies, that's something that comes up pretty frequently. You know, there's the permitting processes and zoning processes that come about with trying to get a garden established. So, you know, one of our goals as an office to help provide resources to communities in that fashion. Um, we also know that there's needs in terms of just knowing what types of conservation practices to implement. So um, we're looking to develop a webinar series for next year to highlight some of those, those points that keep coming up.
2: Cool. Um, Blake, maybe do you want to tell us a little about your work and maybe touch on some of the gardens in New York specifically?
5: Sure. So um, so one of the cool things about the People's Garden Initiative, initially for the 17 uh, locations around the country, uh, New York was identified, New York City was identified as one of those locations. And so there was uh, additional funding tied to uh, addressing some of those identified people's gardens within New York City, uh, some of their needs that they may have. Uh, and so we did that. And uh, so there's three people's gardens within New York City. Um, the Garden of Happiness in the Bronx, Taqua Community Garden uh, in the Bronx, right up from New York Stadium or Yankee Stadium. And then um, the Urban Souls Institute along with uh, another entity with within partnership with NRCS on Governor's Island, uh, there will be a people's garden on Governor's Island as well to try to address those millions of folks that are going to Governor's Island and to mainly teach, right, and help grow food and help 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 be a part of feeding the world.
3: It's so interesting. Governor's Island has become such a like hot island. <laughs> But it's kind of fun because there's like the old houses on it and there's a garden. So that totally makes sense.
5: Yeah, we were just down there, I don't know, maybe two or three months ago, uh, rented some bikes, toured the island, uh, met with our partners, and tried to get up, come up with a game plan to uh, implement the people's garden over there.
2: So will you be providing support to growers or bringing in, like, h- how do you build a people's garden when you've identified, okay, Governor's Island's a great location because, as you said, lots of people go there. So what, what do you want to make sure happens in that setting?
5: So both of the locations in the Bronx were about needs. Uh, what, what were their needs? Um, obviously, they've been established for years. Some of the older urban gardens within the city. Um, some of their infrastructure, whether that was uh, raised beds or uh, irrigation pipe, uh, solar pump, solar panels, some of those things are are old in nature, may need to be upgraded in some way, and so we're coming in and, and providing that assistance, that funding to allow them to uh, upgrade their their garden.
2: Oh, that's great! So in this case, pe- being a people's garden means the government is supporting some infrastructure, some physical upgrades which hopefully will help the garden sort of thrive in, in terms of horticulture and, and food production, but also education and its social missions. Um, that's awesome. Um, and can you, do you have any like fun stories, anything you want to particularly shout out about these locations, like Garden of Happiness or Taqua? We haven't spoken to growers there, but maybe we should, we should like invite them on the show, you know?
5: Listen, you should always speak with Karen Washington. Uh, she will always give you a good, um, good, good, uh, Good talking to. Um, I met Karen. Karen was my first, probably one of my first farmers that I've met uh, in all of New York. Um, and I walked into the gates of the Garden of Happiness, and and if you know Karen, she says she didn't know me, and I didn't know her. I was just meeting her, and she told me I was late, and I was like, wait, you know. <laughs> I'm on time. I'm on time. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm on time. You know, and she's like, no, you're, you're late. Your agency is late to the party. Like, where have you been kind of thing, right? And it was all in good fun, but she was being serious about, you know, as, as an agency or as a department, as USDA, uh, where have you been? And, and I took that to heart. You know, I sat down with her right at the picnic table in the garden there, and we talked about a lot of things talk about some of the struggles that not only her garden is going through, but a lot of gardens within the city are going through and figure out ways in which NRCS or USDA could help, help those gardeners move forward.
3: Yeah. That's so interesting because I, um, I actually took my class to that garden and I totally forgot. And uh, we met with Karen Washington and, and yeah, she's just, she's such a, she she's definitely like an inspiration, but she's also so important in the urban gardening movement. Um, just within the you know food justice, social justice, and um, and also uh, yeah, the the book that she did with Leah Penniman um, is really amazing. The forward that she did, um, uh, Farming While Black. You're doing research. When is that information going to get back to us? Like, when is that going to benefit us? You're coming here. You're studying, you know, community gardens and things like that. Can I get the papers? Like, when you write the papers about this? So it was just such a eye-opening experience, and and she's just so great. So I'm um, I'm so glad you you brought her up, and and that is one of the gardens that you're working with. So thank you.
2: Well, um, yeah, and and I I think it's also interesting to think about conservation in these spaces? I was, I was a little surprised when we reached out to USDA that they suggested speaking about conservation. It wasn't the first topic I had in mind um, coming from sort of food systems and thinking about urban ag in terms of food production primarily, although I know it has so many other benefits. And I think a lot about environmental benefits, you know, managing water um, and especially education and sort of community social benefits. But can you, can you say a little about conservation and sort of um, some of the ways in which uh, that that has maybe enabled you to work in urban ag and bring those resources to growers like, uh, Karen Washington and, and many others who, uh, you know, may, maybe in, in a prior era, USDA was not reaching out to like, maybe, can you say anything about that shift or, or, um, I know Nina, you mentioned that this goes back to 2009 and, and the idea of, of trying to create this movement. But, um, yeah, I'm just curious generally how sort of conservation, uh, Gets into the picture and how you how at USDA maybe urban ag is thought of now since so it's, it's a little bit of a hot topic more recently it seems like compared to ten years ago.
4: I think there's kind of two parts we can answer with um, Blake. I think it would be great to just cover NRCS's mission and you know what we do in the world of conservation and and agriculture. Um, I'm happy to speak a little bit more about the Office of Urban Ag too because I find that like it's an it's an office that was established through the 2018 Farm Bill and. You know, we've got an important mission that's kind of helping propel this forward from USDA's perspective. So, with that, I, Blake, I'll let you kind of lead with the NRCS side of things.
5: So, um, from an NRCS standpoint, so you know, NRCS was derived from the Dust Bowl ages. Uh, from a, we were the Soil Conservation Service, uh, really uh, looking at soil erosion uh, across the plains, Midwest area, and as those moved into the to the East Coast uh as well and so that's where the conservation efforts come from from NRCS from our history and you know we could have another 10 podcasts on our history if you if you'd like but uh but um so from an urban ag and conservation standpoint there are practices in which we have identified that would allow us to uh address some of those needs and some of those practices like High tunnels, uh, hoop houses are for, uh, in some natures, or uh, raised beds, low tunnels, uh, irrigation, pollinator habitat, you name it, right? And so, you know, for high tunnels, for instance, um, it, you know, allow for extending that growing season um, and being able to grow food beyond beyond those 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 times when most folks stop growing food and providing that. Ultimately, providing those food that food to uh, the neighborhood, right? Those that are underserved, those that are in the in those lines waiting on food. Uh, these gardens are the ones that, uh, even through the pandemic, right? So uh, they were the ones, right? Not not the not the the regular food food supply chain, right? These were the, these are the gardens within the city that were providing providing food when everything else shut down, and uh, and we hope to be a part of that. I think. As in we always think about the conservation side. But when you start working in these uh, urban settings, you you know you're part of that food justice. You're part of addressing those food deserts throughout the, or food part apartheid throughout the throughout some of those uh, some of these areas around around the country. And uh, we don't always think about that as a federal agency or as 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 a conservation agency, but we are a part of that.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's so important. Um, I was just talking to my students today about like how long the growing season is here and it's only six or seven months, you know, and people still need fresh produce in the winter. They still need in November, December, you know, January and just how great high tunnels can can change that, you know, like make that accessible and also just a nice environment. It's like who doesn't want to go into a greenhouse, you know, when it's freezing outside, and you can go into this nice, warm greenhouse and all this other stuff. So it's also just like a beautiful space to be in. So that's such an um, important point to bring up. And just in the sense of fresh food access, right? And just a simple thing of putting up a high tunnel. So, yeah,
5: thanks. And, and shout, shout out to, uh, you know, Red Hook Farms, Community Farms, uh, the, chief, uh, the chief of NRCS and I were we're down there a few few weeks ago uh, visiting that farm, uh, just listening to their operation, along with hopping in their high tunnel uh, when it was a little cold along the along the along the river there, and uh, giving giving the chief a little break from from the weather a little bit. So shout out to those guys.
3: Yeah, Brendan is amazing. Who who manages? Uh, Brendan the farm is amazing. Brendan is yeah. amazing. Yeah, I Absolutely. remember. Yeah, going there in the summer and they were actually growing. I might be wrong about this, but they were growing some really interesting tropical crops. I don't think it was turmeric; maybe it was ginger. But they were experimenting with stuff even in the summertime, and I'm sure they like switched over now to the cooler crops. But yeah, yeah, great, great operation.
2: I mean, there's so many, there's so much agricultural horticultural knowledge, and 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 I think it's interesting to think about that ecological component and soil. Um, and, and how that all gets taught and passed down. So it's really great if um, that these things can be sort of supported from the USDA level as well. So you, now that the city has an office of urban ag and the state is forming an office of urban ag, it's great that there's the office of uh, urban ag and innovative production at, at USDA, um, and that like for example, um, that conservation is also in on it. Right? There's there's overlapping jurisdiction there. I think is a good thing to feel. So growers feel like they have. More resources, more knowledge. Um, and I know I just got back. I just got in the door before this call um, from coming back from Cornell and meeting with extension folks. And uh, they've been in the city for a while and have, have staffed up more. Uh, and it's it was great I was chatting with some of them about, um, you know, hired, they hired a climate resilience um, specialists, and I know USDA announced uh, some new—I uh, think—I think grants as well, but but, but new um, focus on sort of climate resilience and climate smart crops and all that. So, I mean, this is something just sort of dovetailing with like how does conservation fit in, but how does the future, how does looking at climate fit into to your work, if if at all, or is that part of how you think about urban ag and the role that urban ag can play? Um, I just feel like it's so important that I—it's I, like always on my mind <laughs> all these days, you know.
4: I mean, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, I'll just say that you know we we hear this a lot with um, both both COVID, but then also climate-related disruptions. Reliance on just a traditional grocery store is not always an option um, to get that fresh local food, and so we're wanting to encourage communities to diversify their food options. And so, if disruptions occur in the future, they still have you know access and. I was recently in Detroit and talking with an urban farmer, and he mentioned during the housing crisis how um, he didn't have access to a cucumber anywhere around, and so you know that was one of the impetuses to just get something established. And I think we all know that with climate change, we're going to have more extreme events. You know, there's going to be areas that are hotter, that are much much wetter, and and so forth. And we just need to figure out ways. Communities can deal with that. Basically, um, we certainly see urban ag innovative production to be at that forefront of of helping communities have access to food.
5: Yeah, you know, I think when I think about climate from from an urban standpoint, is obviously the temperature within the city and and having some green space, not only just parks, but green space within within those uh, you know neighborhood blocks that will allow for some of that you know runoff, rainwater runoff. Uh, capturing some of that water that's not reaching, um, you know, culverts and, and out to the Hudson kind of thing. Um, but the other thing I was thinking about was the access to water uh, from a climate standpoint. I mean, you don't always think about in that in New York City, but there's other areas around the country that, you know, as climate things get a little bit warmer, uh, access to water is, is not the same as it was, you know, five ten years ago. And uh, from a New York City standpoint, there's a lot of farms within the city that do not have access to water. But that could be for many reasons, right? From a municipality standpoint, uh, you know, they may have a hydrant, you know, five hundred feet down the street uh, that they're dragging hoses to. Uh, but but from a USDA standpoint, we're finding ways to provide uh, opportunities to work with these municipalities across the country to to provide access to water on site. I think that's, that is huge for, for these communities that, uh, you know, not everybody's able to go down the street and hook onto a hydrant and drag the hose up the street and, but they have some on site water to where they can, uh, be able to grow, grow food more easily. I, I think that's beneficial.
2: Can you break down, is that, are we talking about wells or, um, rain catchment or what, what does site water look like for, in an urban setting?
5: So on-site water for urban settings, strictly, we just talk about New York City, is is a hydrant, is a is a you know a spigot, you know, frost frost free spigot on the on the inside of the fence, uh, access to them that is hooked onto you know city water. And I think uh, as time goes on, I think we're going to have some opportunities within New York City to do that to some of the uh, food producing farms within the city.
4: Yeah, and in other areas of the country, I mean, range ca- rain catchment can be part of that solution too. So we've talked about, you know, gutter systems on high tunnels and catch, you know capturing that water and reusing it. So certainly, those are other aspects. I think we're we're looking at um, kind of from a national perspective.
3: Yeah, water seems like such a huge um, um, in, importance in just like growing food in general. And it's interesting because I thought, you know. On the East Coast, we're safe. In New York City, we are safe because we usually get a lot of rain. But this summer was definitely a wake up call where we had two months with barely any rain. And so it was interesting because I was thinking about like, okay, well, if it's rain catchment and and if it's not raining, then, you know, what's the good of that? But we're getting all of this rain this fall. So we could save that rain now and then have it for future droughts. So I think, yeah, the, this idea and also just sustainability, keeping that from going into the the sewer systems and other things, catching the rain. Um, but also, yeah, the, the very importance of having that water hookup, like if you're on a roof and you're if you're in a community garden, how important that is. And it's funny because uh, I'm sorry, I'm doing a lot of anecdotal stuff, but I have a community garden that's like on my walk to the train every day. And during the drought, you know, the the person who is helping to run it, you know, it really suffered. And I was like, hey, you should just go um, to the fire department and see if you could get a water hookup or whatever. And she was so nervous about it. And she didn't do it for like, you know, a month or two. And then she finally did it. But it's also intimidating to some people. Like, can I actually use this? Um, fire hydrant. Is it accessible? Do I have to fight? Also the guy down the block wants to wash his car with it. You know, So it's like all of these different aspects to it. So I just, yeah, that, that just seems such important work. And I know that I keep on, that's like my main thing that I'm saying that this, how important work this is, but it really is.
2: Water access is huge. Well, it raises a question for me. How did like, does that involve working with the city of New York um, can you say a little about the different levels? Like, how does USDA work in that setting where you have um, yeah, there's other there's other like policymakers or there's 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 other sort of entities around do you all collaborate? Is that sort of new? is is it being figured out now? Um, you know, again, I know the Office of Urban AG, as we're typing this just was sort of created.
5: Okay, so from from a New York standpoint, um, we are working closely with the uh, New York Parks Department along with green thumb uh, to really look at ways to provide access you know there's over 600 or so uh, community gardens and farms that are permitted by green thumb uh, in the city that it's not including all the farms that are not permitted by green thumb but uh, but yeah so we're working closely with with those guys to make sure that it's possible for us to do uh, currently uh, looking at writing a full watershed plan uh, to identify and address uh, all needs with not only urban ag, but maybe some of the city's needs on on things. So uh, more to come on that. Uh, Those are just the preliminary stages of what we're trying to do.
4: Um, From the Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production side of things, you know, when our office got established in the 2018 Farm Bill, there were certain responsibilities set out for us, you know, coordinating amongst the USDA agencies, we've got some funding opportunities, of course, the People's Garden, um, but then also identifying best practices uh, for navigating local policies. And there's a lot of really great resources out there now in terms of what communities are doing to establish, you know, food policy, urban ag policy, drafting ordinances and so forth. And, I, you know, part of what we're trying to do is hone in on some of those resources and identify those best practices, really. Um, so that's something we're actively working on now and, and hoping to share out soon.
2: That's great. I want to read both the Watershed Report and the Best Practices Zoning Ordinances for Urban Ag Report. Uh, whenever, whenever you got them, uh, we'll have you back. Um, can wife you share... loves,
3: wife loves to, uh, to read reports. Oh, I
2: have yeah <laughs> folders and folders of reports. I have every every report about ag technology going back decades. I have NASA reports that are five thousand pages long because they mention algae God. once. Uh, I didn't read them obviously. Um, yeah, Nina, can you share like? some of the best practices or some things that are seeing across cities. And then I, maybe, you know, this is a way, maybe Blake, we, we can come back to that. We were discussing before we were taping about other cities beyond New York city in the state. Um, but, but Nina, I'm really curious just across, you know, from your, from UAAP's perspective, what, what are you seeing? What are some things that you think all, you know, cities should be aware of or, or many cities at least should be aware of in terms of urban ag and, and fostering healthy, you know, community gardens?
4: Sure. So, you know, Communities all over often have you know, zoning requirements that throw up impediments to growing food within the city, right? And so we're really seeing quite a few communities across the country, including where I live, actually, um, in Gainesville, Florida, where they're, they're drafting ordinances to make it easier to grow food. And so that's one thing that, um, you know, we're we're trying to collect those uh you know, examples from around the country and and showcase to communities that these are options available. Um, and there's ways to do it so that, you know, w- you can get the best of all worlds. Sometimes, of course, depending on the community, change can be hard. Um, but um, there's plenty of people who've been reaching out to us saying, you know, we we want to do this. We want to get that hydroponic system set up in our community. And we're running into those roadblocks. You know, what can we do to 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 overcome them? So um, I would say that, you know, that's those are the types of conversations that are being had. And um Zoning is one of them. The permitting requirements is another part of it, too. And so we'll want to be honing in on resources to help, you know, some of those ways that can help a startup really get going for an urban farm. So a lot of times people don't even know what questions to ask when they approach a city official, right? They know that they need to get approval for X, Y, and Z, but they don't know exactly, you know, which department to go to. Um what specific forms to fill out, and so forth. and And so I think best practices that hone in on that, you know, a department serving you know the public um, for setting up your your watering system, right? or your or getting your garden established, we want to just be able to share that info out so people can easily get it done.
2: Oh, that's great. And that's just quickly, I know, Blake, I want to hear what you're thinking across the state. But, you know, it made me think, I I saw an article that said Florida has one one of two states to have a right to garden law, which I thought was so interesting. I don't know if that's relevant to what you're describing. (laughs) Uh,
4: So that was put out by the Florida Department of Agriculture, a little outside of my scope and expertise, so probably won't touch too much upon that. Um, Yeah, what I was speaking specifically to was a, a local county ordinance where I live.
2: Got it, got it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: Blake, what is, what is the situation in New York? Where do you see sort of, you mentioned like Buffalo, Rochester. I mean, I know Buffalo has thriving community gardens. I know the Capital Region does. Um, what, what are you seeing kind of, kind of across the state?
5: So I, I think from the standpoint of USDA or NRCS, when it comes to upstate and some of the areas within upstate Buffalo, Rochester, um, we we don't have the same amount of traction as we have, you know, say within New York City. But I, but the amount of time that I've spent in those two locations, and maybe even over in Troy and an Albany area, um, is some of the same needs. Right? You know, they're looking to extend their growing season. They're looking for soil remediation, uh, whether that is raised beds, right, uh, to uh, uh, get get the food out of some of the contaminated soils that that may exist in some of these urban areas. Um, looking for pollinator habitat. Uh, a lot of locations within the city do not have uh, good access to pollinators. So uh, that is something that NRCS or USDA does. So uh, some of the same things, I, I wouldn't say there's a pretty drastic thing, you know, between New York city or uh, Buffalo Rochester area. It's just some of the same needs are there from an urban standpoint. And I think Nina hit it on the, it hit it on the head when it comes to some of the roadblocks uh, from some of the municipalities um, trying to get established uh, urban farms within the city.
2: Yeah, that's great. I mean, so it's it's great it's great that you have um, a plan and are working on it. Um, I just is there is there also a question of resourcing? Like, I know there's now grants from UAP. Um, there's also lots of different uh, um, NRCS um, funds of different kinds. So is that is is any of that available to urban growers? I mean, are there different grant programs that that you're trying to make people aware of or that are expanding any news there you want to share um, or
4: yeah absolutely so our office uh, administers two funding opportunities we have our urban agriculture and innovative production grants um, and th- so those are open to nonprofits school districts tribal governments and organizations um, and what we're really looking for are projects that serve multiple farmers and gardeners helping them get you know, grow food and provide access uh, to fresh, healthy food, and. Under that funding opportunity, we've got planning grants. So, say you've got a group in a community, they are working with a group of partners, they have an identified need, they need some funding just to be able to either hire a specific consultant or provide the resources to to develop a plan to address that need. So, um, we have grants for that type of assistance. We also have implementation grants. Um, So, that's essentially the boots on the ground, getting it done, whether it be setting up that community garden, the hydroponics or aquaponics system, rooftop gardens, and so forth. We have grants to support getting that implementation of those projects. Um, I do want to highlight that we also have a composting and food waste reduction agreement and so we do work in the the field of food loss and waste because we recognize it's intricately connected it's very connected to um you know urban ag and what people are doing on the ground so um you know helping municipalities and local governments set up composting systems identified food waste reduction strategies, just making sure all those resources that go into growing food make sure that people can enjoy and eat that food. Um, and of course prevent it from going to landfills where it's producing methane and, and other greenhouse gases.
3: Yeah, that that is so important, especially the waste aspect. I think in New York City, um, maybe y'all could help me with this, but are we supposed to, are we still on the trajectory to be zero waste by 2050? <laughs> Maybe. I'm not sure. I forget. Wife, do you know
2: them? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a live wire. Uh, we'll have to have on. <laughs> there's a compost expert I've been meeting to ask to be on the show um, who has a lot of thoughts on this. But, but as I understand it, the city has been really mulling over different strategies um, because the brown bins require trucking. And the goal is to not have trucks that are it's not the most efficient way to move waste around essentially and to think of other ways to move waste, um, either to compost or to some other, you know, to, to bigger wastewater resource recovery facilities. So I think it's a question of how to do it at the scale of New York city. It's just so big, and because the infrastructure isn't there already, and it's really expensive to retrofit anything in New York, because everything's dense and it's every square foot is worth a lot of money. So, as I understand it, yeah, it's it's a very known uh, problem. But I, I won't pretend to speak on behalf of the experts and what they want to do. We'll, we'll we'll invite some folks on to speak from the city perspective.
3: Well, yeah, uh, and and also it's like I I am a master composter, and I've I've kind of studied it, and and in that class we. Um, discussed how important urban agriculture is within that and if folks could actually bring their waste to these community gardens or to urban garden farms and gardens in general but if they had the support so they could actually process the material because that could be a whole job in itself so it's like if you have your whole neighborhood giving you <laughs> their compost that is a job that's a whole job right? So, um, so that's so important if, um, there is resources and funding and all this other stuff to kind of help these urban farms decide if they want to start processing that waste and if they could actually do it and if they have the support to do it. So, um, yeah.
4: And uh, absolutely. Well, and, and I just, I do want to point out for that specific uh, agreement option, um, we work with local governments, school districts, again, tribal governments and organizations. But a key part of that is that collaborative effort. So, so many of our projects around the country, while say a municipality is the lead applicant, they've got a community composter they're working with, or a series of them, Um, you know, universities, nonprofits, and so forth are also contributing to those efforts. So, um, that's a little bit more about how that program works.
2: Yeah, you can imagine like decentralized networks where people are doing various tasks. Some have anaerobic digestion, some, you know, people are doing different pieces and maybe it adds up to enough to help a municipality move towards its waste goals. And I think one, you know, from a sort of scientific point of view, how, how quickly can that happen? How, are we talking about a 1% difference or a 50% difference or what? So I know it's going to look different in different places and I know it's hard to change things. Again, at least in New York City, it's very hard to change a lot of practices, but I know it's on people's minds. So it's really great that, again, USDA also is playing that coordinating, you know, federal level um, role. Um, so, Melissa, do you have other questions? I want to make sure that, that you know, we cover everything.
3: Um, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm good. I feel like I've just been jumping in here and there, but I've, I've definitely been learning so much about the People's Garden Program. So, yeah. Um... Uh, but I'm, oh, uh, did we talk about, we did talk about the expansion, the expansion, the 17 urban ag hubs. Have we talked about that?
4: So, yeah. And I, I provided a response in terms of those 17 flagship gardens, but I, I, that was one thing I wanted to go back to and to say, I kind of wanted to revise what I said. It wasn't, um, yeah, the best answer. So I don't know if now is, yeah, do you
2: want to, yeah, I think, I think the question is something like, You know, so there's the there's this I I think actually both sides would maybe merit some time, which is there's the USDA's National Headquarters Garden in D.C. And then there's 17. I mean, I have it written down as urban ag hubs, but that may not be the right term. Um, So, Nina, maybe could you sort of walk us through, like, what are these spaces? What are they like? How are they determined? Um, And maybe we can teleport that answer back to uh, when we get into sort of Blake and Karen Washington and, and the city.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So kind of starting with the USDA National Headquarters Garden, um, it's basically at this point, you know, we're preparing for winter. Our farm manager is planting cover crops and uh, preparing the last harvest because we know some cold temps are coming. you know, we, we, we grow food there, and we also demonstrate how we're growing food there. That's really kind of what we're hoping to to do in that space. Um, we donate food as well. So over the last growing season, we donated over 500 pounds of food to the DC Central Kitchen. Um, it's really just like a space for visitors from all over the US to come and, and check out. And um, in addition to, to growing food that's, you know, Appropriate to DC, we also are highlighting some culturally significant crops there as well. So we've had fish peppers and pima cotton, and we get a lot of interest in in those um, crops and a lot of interest in seeing more of that. And um, I think another thing just to really highlight for that space, you know, it's a very busy, hectic area of the city. So it's a a place for people to come and have just like a moment of peace and just like quiet, right? Uh, Or relative quiet, you know, around some really pretty green space and. And seeing how food is produced, so the People's Garden headquarters—it's um, it's just a really special space. We we also recognize, you know, flagship gardens across the country would be really important because geographically. You know the needs of communities are so different and and sometimes it's very just place-based it's like what does this place need um, in other cases it's very you know specific to the southwest or to the northwest or whatnot so the 17 gardens really are to, to showcase that geographic representation also diversity in terms of who we're working with um, in some cases it's nonprofits in some cases it's actually like city government um, and I, I we s- selected those because of that geographic diverse representation presentation truly um, and to start with those flagship gardens to in, in their areas
2: that's awesome and we have three in new york city which is really great so uh whoo um <laughs>
3: no, that's um, great why th- is it time for lightning round it's oh, my we favorite could...
2: <laughs> well let me ask Blake, nina are there things that we should um talk about that we haven't covered is there anything you all want to make sure um, people know and, and want to go into more depth on Any of your work that's just super exciting? Anything on your minds that you feel like, um, you know, has been inspiring lately?
4: Well, I, for me, you might have heard a little bit about this. I'm just very passionate about food loss and waste. And I've worked at the local level a lot in that space. And so um, in terms of inspiration for me, we have our partnership meetings with folks um, from around the country. And they get to share out their, their projects and what they're doing. And so um, it's just an addendum to whatever i discussed. But I, I suppose that's kind of what keeps me going a lot of times is, to, is on the ground. You know, These are the people getting it done.
5: And and I I think for me, it's just being able to work for an agency like NRCS or a department like USDA that is allowing us to be in this space, a space that we haven't been in, uh, that we are in now, and we have the resources to make a difference for those communities around the country. You know, I think about having the chief of NRCS here in New York, in New York City, first time in New York City, we I take them to Brooklyn Grains uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, get them on the rooftop, Uh, never been on a rooftop to see how much food is actually grown on a rooftop, uh, trying to figure out how in in ways in which we can help, not only in New York City, but around the country, those folks that are thinking outside of normal agriculture and how NRCS can help out. And then also just finishing out the day um, at Red Hook with with brendan and and having that connection on the ground with some of these folks that are really doing some great work uh providing a good service to the communities they're teaching they're growing they're helping feed the next generation
2: yeah is that i mean does that speak to its shift at usda um some of this this focus on communities maybe underserved urban communities like is that something where you you feel you've seen a difference or you or- you know, do people speak of that institutionally, or is it, is it sort of just like, hey, we're just doing our job? Because um, it does seem from the outside, from like following the the media closely, that is a shift and and a positive one that USDA has um, created new programs and is coming to to more areas and sort of, you know, trying to sort of work with different stakeholder groups that maybe in the past have felt you know more of a conflictual relationship with the federal government. So I don't know if you feel like that's that's also kind of a um, a cool part of your job that you can you can be part of that shift.
5: So I, I will say that. I will say that uh, from my standpoint, you know, speaking for us from a natural resource conservation service perspective, uh, that has always been a part of us uh, that, you know, we, we strive in trying to help the underserved to help those beginning farmers and, and ranchers across the country. Um, but with, with funding, you know, with dedicated funding to some of these locations around the country that we have not had that dedicated funding. Now we We may have provided some technical assistance where we're providing knowledge to somebody on how to do something, but we haven't been able to just really dedicate funding to some of these locations. That is what I'm excited about, uh, not only in New York City, but the other 16 hubs around the country.
4: Yeah, and from just the departmental level, the establishment of the Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production was a a big move forward, um, helping to coordinate these activities across the agencies uh, that make up the USDA um, to provide that valuable technical assistance. And then also the the funding as well uh, in spaces that we may not have been really um, funding as heavily in the past. So certainly there's been a shift and um, in addition to urban ag, the equity component, component the climate component, those are certainly big priorities um, at the department level. And then also, of course, within NRCS and with our chief um, and employees.
2: Yeah, that's great. And it, and it makes sense from NRCS thinking about, um, you know, the Dust Bowl and trying to help people just have access to food. But that's an era when America was still shifting toward urban. And now you have such heavy urbanization that it does make, I mean, in addition to all sorts of other historical reasons why now there's more attention toward urban growing because, you know, urbanization has, um, has, has advanced so, so much and it doesn't look like it's going back the other direction anytime soon. So you can imagine over time, there'll just be more and more need for that knowledge in, in, you know, dense urban areas on the East coast. Um, not to say we shouldn't, we should also serve, and I know USDA does serve, you know, the middle of the country. Um, so that's that's an interesting sort of historical perspective and yeah from the innovative side I mean I have to ask um, also one one other last last question um, what about indoor ag is that it hasn't come up and and I haven't thought too much about it in this conversation but it is it's really how I got an interest in urban agriculture in the first place was the growth of these technologies um, and seeing them as something beyond, you know, greenhouses in the Dutch sense or sort of NASA space agriculture, um, but as commercially viable, uh, different modes of sort of distributing crop growing into buildings. And as you mentioned on roofs and uh, whether using them for nurseries or, or high value crops like, like cannabis, um, you know, they've just exploded all over the place. And, and there's a lot of interest. I've seen it community spaces too, people using different from a hoop house to like having small sunless growing environments. Um, even just for education. I mean, it seems like it's it's taking off. So I don't know if, if that's on your minds, or I'm, I'm curious, just what are your thoughts in terms of indoor ag?
4: Absolutely. So, I mean, innovative production is part of our name, and uh, we certainly want to support that growth through our not only our funding, but also making the connections. We had a conversation with folks at the Department of Energy who are also looking in this space and Trying to address some of those challenges that have occurred, you know, within those spaces and energy use and so forth. So we're we're really hoping to be a clearinghouse of resources to help provide to to those growers. In addition, I hadn't mentioned, we have that federal advisory committee that's um, essentially to provide recommendations to the Secretary of Agriculture of USDA working in the space of urban agriculture and innovative production. So we have representation from across different fields to help inform us. And because innovative production is fairly new for us, that that insight will be very valuable moving forward. Um, So yeah, just a few things that we've been looking at considering in that space.
2: Yeah, and it's tough with NRC. I mean, it, it's interesting because the indoor space generally you're not talking about soil production. Although there is, I was just learning about a company uh, called Agbotics that's doing um, essentially high tech greenhouses, but with soil production, and and saying it's it's really a good uh, way to to grow high value you know commercial crops, and and that it, it's competitive with um, hydroponic farms. But. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that, that the energy question is is all that a lot of these growers are thinking about because um, of long term their claims towards sustainability, but also just in the near term, energy prices have gone up and it seems like they're going to stay up for a variety of reasons. Um, so it does seem like that is the major issue with with a lot of the innovative methods It's just they're very you know carbon intense. But you know there's people trialing all these cool things from uh, cogen and just you know using outputs from other uh, industries um, to like hydrogen power, which I don't think is cost competitive yet, but is predicted to eventually be, you know, um, depending where you are. So anyway, more to, more to come there. Um, I think we're almost out of time, but really quickly, one lightning round question. Don't think about it. What's your favorite food to grow?
4: Well, for me at this point, um herbs are really uh fun for me to grow right now because i have a two-year-old two-year-old daughter and she uh really loves picking plants and smelling them and sharing them with mama and dad. and so we've you know put together a little herb garden and she can roam around and, and do all the picking
5: <laughs> nice uh for me i'm from the Midwest, so you know a good ear sweet corn you, you could you cannot pass up so uh and then my daughter started taking up a little gardening on the side and she wanted tomatoes. And I, you know, she bought three or four tomato plants and she had more tomatoes than what she could do with. She was like, I'm over it. So I told you, I told you, you don't need like one plant, you know, but, uh, that's what, we, that was our summer project. So.
2: Oh, that's awesome. That was, that was the first thing I grew with my parents was tomatoes. So, um, there's nothing better than growing your own tomatoes. I, I think, um, All right. Well, with that, I think, I think this is it. I mean, it's been really great speaking. And again, we'd we'd love to have you back on and and have some updates when uh, you have, you know, news that you want to share. And if you can think of other folks who we should talk to, you know, please pass, pass them along. Um, Thank you so much, you know, for your time uh, and, and your work uh, in urban ag generally. Um, Melissa, any final thoughts?
3: That's it. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Oh, no problem. Thanks thanks for for having us. Yeah.
2: Great. Um, if people want to follow you, should they just check out essentially, uh, you know, UAIP and NRCS? I mean, any, anywhere special you want to send folks uh, for more information?
4: Uh, from the UAIP part of it, um, usda.gov urban. We've got a lot of information out there.
5: And if they Googled anything, uh, NRCS New York, our website will pop up. Uh, we're on Twitter as well, uh, NRCS New York. Uh, they can follow us there as well.
2: Great. Uh, well, we'll put those links in the show notes. Um, thank you all again and, uh, yeah, have a lovely, um, post-growing season break. Fields is powered by Riverside.